Welcome to Two Keto Dudes. I'm Carl Franklin in Connecticut in the United States. And about three weeks ago, I started a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism and tame the wild beast. <laughs> Hi, I'm Richard. I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. Uh, I've actually been on a keto diet since April of 2014. Uh, when I started, I was very sick with uh, complications from type 2 diabetes. Uh, within six months of starting the diet, uh, all my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. And I also have type 2 diabetes, and we're going to share the progress of my journey into ketosis and keto adaptation and Richard's experience thriving for years on ketosis. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors and we don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're also both software developers, so we're not uh, afraid of a little technical detail. Uh, we've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, <laughs> and we hope to uh, share some of that research. So uh, where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite the research supporting any claims we make. Right, and, you know, because we're computer programmers, we have what's called computer butt. <laughs> and that's what happens when you sit down all day. This is very true. But we're also both foodies. We really love eating. Obviously, that's why we got heavy in the first place. But we like good food. So we're also going to share some of the great food that we can eat on this diet. And in every episode of Two Keto Dudes, both Richard and I will share a recipe for an essential keto meal that we eat regularly. So let's start podcast number two, The Sugar Show. Do we have any corrections or apologies from last week? Sure. Yeah, I, I made a statement that the heart is 22% more efficient when it runs in ketones. Uh, and while I was researching the, the reference links for last week's show, I found out that that wasn't quite accurate. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's actually 28%. Better oh. hydraulic efficiency. So you're conservative in your estimate. So I, I was slightly conservative. So anyway, links to all the science uh, in last week's show is in our show notes. All right. So if you're starting with episode number two, and I don't recommend you do, go back to episode number one because it's chock full of science and links to the studies and all of that stuff. But the ketogenic diet is essentially restricting carbohydrates to less than 20 grams a day. Some people will say it's less than 50 grams a day. Richard, when you did it, you were less than 10 grams a day or even 5 grams a day. Uh, you eat only enough protein to maintain your muscles, and everything else is fat. And we probably should say that there are things that you should eat as well as fat. But fat, protein, and carbs are your energy sources, right? That's right, yeah. You should eat green leafy vegetables. You should have some fiber of some kind. Fiber is really good. Is it, did I leave anything out? Uh, potassium pop tablets, probably? Yeah, a bit of magnesium, some uh, fish oil tablets uh, I also take on a regular basis. And I also take a multivitamin just in case because you never know what you're missing right. doing this kind of thing. But the main thing about carbs is you only want incidental carbs. So if you go uh, get some spinach, there'll be some carbohydrates in there. Yeah. And you know when you add up all of the carbohydrates in the day that you have, you want to keep them low enough so as to stay in ketosis. So right. the bottom line for this is we're getting most of our energy from fat. And ketosis is nutritional ketosis, not ketoacidosis, which is the scary kind of ketosis that type 1 diabetics can run into. If you have any concerns about that, go listen to episode one. We're not going to redo it here. We're going to, we're going to talk about sugar. Yeah, that's right. So um, before we get too much further into it, let me tell you about my current state. I have been uh, three weeks now, and for the last week, I've hit a plateau as well. 
and I've pretty much maintained the same weight, the weight plateau. But that means a couple of things. First of all, I'm in raging ketosis, according to my keto strips. Like I'm, I am in ketosis. Mm-hmm. I do not have carb cravings. In fact, I have to remind myself to eat. Maybe that's one of the problems, that's right? Awesome, yeah. yeah. You have to, you should, I should be listening closer to my body and eating when I'm hungry and stopping when I'm full. That's my next thing. So I went looking online for, and I searched for, you know, ketogenic diet plateaus. And a lot of these places suggest things that, uh, that you're out of ketosis when this happens, but I'm not. So I think I'm either a building muscle and Mm. you know, when you, I dropped 26 pounds, right? So I have a larger muscle to fat ratio and I have the muscles of when I was heavy. And so uh, my muscles are like, you know, let's go, let's go, let's go. Yeah. And so I'm thinking that I'm thinking that, you know, because I'm so heavy, these muscles are working hard and uh, that, that I'm building them up, but I'm not exercising either. So that's probably, well, you you exercise a little bit during the day, but that's probably, that's probably what it is that, you know, I'm feeling the call to exercise and I'm not doing it. So I think that's what I'm going to be doing next time. Yeah, I think that the, the body doesn't drop weight in a straight line. Right. It has to, to rest up a bit and work out what's happening uh, because when, when you first stop eating any glucose, that's an emergency situation for your body and it's going to be quickly rearranging things to try and get energy for itself. Mm. And once it feels comfortable that it's got a, a regular source of energy, it'll then start dropping again. So you told me about this uh, three days ago and I went to look at my own because I, I religiously tracked everything I, I ate and all exercise I did for the first 18 months. Yeah. And I went and looked at the graph of my of my weight loss and I had a plateau about the same time. In fact, I went up a little bit after about three or four weeks. Hmm. Then I started going down and when I started going down, it really it started a regular progression for almost five months. Then. Yeah. And so one of the things that I've seen recommended, which I'm not going to do, is go off the diet for a week. And I'm, I've, you know, I've done this before when I haven't been in ketosis and it kind of works, but it doesn't really ultimately work. I mean, I've, I've spent three weeks in ketosis. I want to move forward to keto adaptation. I'm not craving carbs, so I'm not going to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, if anything, yeah, I'm going to try this by exercise and then limiting the amount of food that I eat, which is going to be fine for me. I'm not hungry. Yeah, I think you could probably add in a little bit of exercise like a like a walk. We're, we're both big guys. Right. Back when I was 300 pounds, I was cycling quite a bit because I don't have a driver's license. I've never had one. So um, I cycle everywhere. And so when I lost the weight, I lost 70, 70 pounds, I still had the legs left of somebody who was 300 pounds. So, you yeah, know, yeah. And, and that's just walking around, cycling, around, getting on a push bike kind of muscles. So so that's my plan for next week. Next week, I'll check in. I'm sure I'll be down a little bit. But anyway, Lustig, Dr. Robert Lustig made this video, Sugar the Bitter Truth. I guess it's a book too, right? But he did a lecture and 6.2 million views on YouTube. I know. He really blew the, the door off this thing. Before that, we weren't really thinking too much about sugar. There was this guy in, in England, uh, Yudkin, John Yudkin, who'd warned that uh, sugar was uh, a, a bitter poison. And as you you were talking last week about Ansel Keys, he was the American nutrition researcher who determined that fat was the problem. There was this 
basically two camps. One said the problem is all of the carbohydrates we're eating or specifically all the sugar that we're eating. And uh, the other said it's all the fat that we're eating. I must say, when I was a kid, now I was born in 1967. So when I was a kid, my mother turned into a health food nut and she was all about whole grains. And Adele Davis was her guru, right? And I'm a, I don't say guru personally. They never met, of course. But you know, she read all the books and Adele Davis was all about no sugar as well, but, but whole grains. So my mother grew up force feeding me all these crazy cereals and granolas that she made herself. And, you know, yeah. it, I'm sure it was a healthy, uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure it was healthy for me then. I had exactly the same experience because my mother was into Nathan Pritikin's, uh, the Pritikin diet, which was no sugar, no fat. And that was like no calories either. That was a pretty extreme diet. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That was hypocaloric. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a fairly tough. Yeah, uh, fairly tough diet. But she would feed me, yeah, a lot of whole grains and a lot of. Uh, we'd buy raw sugar because raw sugar is better for you than processed sugar. That's what she. That's what they all thought, anyway. Yeah, well, yeah, biochemically they're the same thing, pretty much. Right. So, um, you know, they're going to have the same effect on us. But as you say, we went through this phase where uh, we were eating lots of glucose, lots of glucose in the form of whole wheat and mm. in form of various different kinds of sugars. I mean, one of the things that that lasted mentioned was that uh, sugar hides in all of our foods in so many different ways. Mm. And he, he identified 56 different names for sugar. Yeah, from fruit juice to maltodextrin to beet sugar to dietase. This video is great because he really goes into the science of how your body metabolizes sugar. And he specifically, and this is where I'm not sure about, and you're not sure either, he specifically calls out fructose. Yeah, he does. Now, table sugar is half glucose and half fructose, right? That's right. And fructose is the fruit sugar, right? That's how you can remember it. Fructose, fruit sugar. It is. A lot of ripe fruit uh, has high levels of fructose, but also has glucose and sucrose and various different other sugars, yeah. Okay, so when you eat, and he says, and this is well known, that when you eat a piece of bread, your your body breaks that down into glucose only, and it's the fructose that causes the problem. He says in this video that fructose and glucose are not uh, metabolized the same way. And I'm re just reading his slide here. Fructose is seven times more likely than glucose to form advanced glycation end products or AGEs. Yeah, and that fructose right. does not suppress ghrelin, G-H-R-E-L-I-N. Mm -hmm. And acute fructose does not stimulate insulin. Yes, that's right. But hepatic fructose metabolism, which is how your liver processes fructose, is different. That's and right. chronic yeah. fructose exposure promotes the metabolic syndrome. That's his essential that's thesis. Right. Yeah, he, what he's saying is that fructose is the chronic poison and uh, glucose is the acute poison, that fructose causes insulin sensitivity. Uh, when you then eat glucose, you're unable to uh, to get it into your cells. If you look at diabetics, a large population of diabetics, and you work out what their average blood sugar is, the HbA1c, you can actually see all of the really horrible things that happen for diabetics start to happen uh, when there's just a slightly more than normal amount of sugar in their blood. If your blood sugar is high, then your risk of uh, kidney disease, your risk of blindness, your risk of lower extremity amputation, and your risk of uh, heart disease all goes up. Also, there's a difference between the sugar in your blood and the sugar you eat. Coincidentally, there's also a difference in cholesterol in your blood and the cholesterol you eat. 
Well, that's right. Yeah. You know, these are things that should be obvious by now. And conventional wisdom says your brain needs 150 grams of glucose a day. Otherwise, it'll go into a coma. What's the deal? You, you hear that a lot from dietitians, what have you, but it's actually a myth. Yeah, that's a myth, right? Yeah, I'll give you my example. I've, uh, in the process of my weight loss, I've had a bit of a plateau lately, so I've decided to try fasting. We're going to have another mm. show about fasting, mm -hmm. uh, but I have, I've not eaten anything for now, 56 hours and 19 minutes. Wow. And, and I've just done a 32K bike ride around Canberra, around the, the lake in the middle of Canberra. Wow. And there's been no sign of my brain going into uh, coma at all in that period. And so... There is this theory that your brain requires 150 grams of glucose a day. And where it stems from is that the brain is one of the most metabolically active um, parts of the body. Yeah. And it requires about 600 kilocalories per day just to run doing nothing. And if you're eating carbs, as we said in the last show, if you're eating carbs, you're getting it from glucose. That's right. For each gram of carbohydrate is uh, four kilocalories. So that pretty much adds up to your 600. Okay. The thing is that our livers are perfectly capable of making all of the glucose that the brain needs to survive. For example, the past three days, as I say, I've eaten nothing and yet I've been able to do a 32K bike ride. And you're not hungry, you're not tired, you're not no, dizzy. I, I feel like I've got energy. I've got like, it feels like I've got electricity coming out of my fingertips. It's just, wow. you know. It's alive. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and, and, you know, it's... Frank and thing, Richard. Frank and Richard. The, the, the thing is that I'm using energy that I stored a decade ago. I'm using body fat for energy. And, you know, a decade ago I had a Krispy Kreme and I had too much energy for the moment and so I packed it on um, in, in my body fat mm. and now I'm, I'm able to utilize that. So, And how long do you think you can go without eating. I mean, eventually you're going to get hungry, right? Yeah. Um, I was a little bit hungry about uh, two hours ago and I had a tablespoon of chicken stock in some hot water, like a bone broth kind of thing with some salt in it. And the hunger went away right away. So it was pretty much, it was a uh, it was a salt craving. As we mentioned last week, yeah, you, you, you need a lot more salt when you're in ketosis. So. Now, uh, we should mention also that you should not start a ketogenic diet w with a fast because you really have to be keto adapted in order yeah. for that to happen. And if you want more on keto adaptation, there's a link on our website under the science category. And also we dis we discussed it at length in show one. So don't do that. Yeah, don't. But it is a lot easier for somebody who is keto adapted because all of our mechanisms for burning fat have been upregulated. And so we've, we've adapted to become very good at burning fat. Right. And that's the whole point of this conversation is that your brain doesn't need glucose. It could, it can use ketones if you're keto adapted. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the brain doesn't need you to eat any glucose. It's quite happy to make the, have the liver make it for it. But now you, this is interesting. You say the liver will make the glucose, but but when you're keto adapted, does the brain still use glucose from the liver or is it all ketones all the time? Yeah, it's actually, uh, when you're fully keto adapted, it's about 75% of the energy of the brain comes from ketones and 25% oh. comes from glucose. Okay. Uh, when you first um, stop eating carbohydrates, mm. your liver has a bit of a panic and it tries to make every type of ketone that it possibly can. That what's causing that is it's trying to make as much glucose as it possibly can as well. Mm. So when you first start out, you're spilling a lot of those um, ketones in your in your urine. Right. But once you've been doing it, like I've been doing it for two years now, yeah. 
before my bike ride, I tested my ketones and, and I had 0.4 ketones, which is quite low. Did um, you test it with urine test or a blood test? I, I, I tested it with a blood test. I have a, right. I have a Freestyle Optium Neo, which is a uh, glucometer that can uh, test beta-hydroxybutyrate in my blood as well as glucose. Nice, nice. Yeah, so that's the primary ketone that, that our brains are running on. So once we're keto adapted, we, we produce that stuff very efficiently. And All right, 75-25. 75-25. So um, if your glucose is too high, a lot of the problems are chronic. The acute problems are problems that you probably notice when your blood sugar is too high. You, you're a diabetic. We're both diabetics. We, we probably have a rough idea. It's not a, a symptom that you can pick up very easily. But okay. um, you, you might be uh, muddle-headed. You might feel like like if you wake up with a high blood sugar, you, you'll feel like you were stewing in your own juices at night yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. It's just a horrible, horrible feeling. We all know that blood sugar is really important to regulate. It's good to keep at a safe level. This is what you were just talking about. You use a glucometer to tell how you're reacting to food. That's a, a standard kit that you can get by prescription from your doctor in the United States anyway. You could probably just go to a store and buy one, and it's not too expensive. Yeah, in, in Australia, we can buy it, go, uh, buy it from a pharmacy. So if you don't eat carbs, your liver creates the glucose. And what about diabetics? Is there anything special about the liver creating glucose yeah. in, in well, di- type 2 diabetes? That's the unique case for type 2 diabetics. I mean, type 1 diabetics don't make any insulin, and that's a, that's an autoimmune problem. And mm. 1 in 20 uh, diabetics have that kind of diabetes. So that's the, the majority of people who have chronically high blood sugar. And the core problem for us is that our livers make three times the glucose that everybody else does, oh. that normal people do. It means that we have a chronically high level of glucose persistently in the body the whole time. Okay. That in conjunction with some genetics and you're eating a high carbohydrate diet for 20 or 30 years, mm. fructose can actually increase uh, insulin resistance. It's a persistent insult to your body and because it's got a lot of glucose, it's making a lot of insulin and hormones like insulin are normally released in a pulsatile manner, short, sharp pulses. But because you've got so much glucose there and it's there all the time, they have to be long, languid pulses and eventually it becomes a continuous stream of insulin. And the body just starts ignoring that insulin because it's it's heard it before, right? So yeah, it, yeah. it just says, you know, I'm going to ignore that. And that sets up a vicious cycle. It's a, it's a positive feedback loop. Metabolic syndrome. Exactly. And that's how we end up with metabolic syndrome. So, so this um, overproduction of, um, of glucose in the liver is what causes our problem. And it's one of the, the, the cures for that is, uh, or one of the chemical uh, methods of tamping down the amount of glucose your liver produces is something called metformin. Right. It's the first drug they put you on when you're diabetic, when you type you're diabetic. Metformin's been around since the 50s, I think, hasn't it? And it's, yeah. been, it's very cheap and uh, effective, very effective. However, it, metformin reduces glucose, but it doesn't do all the other things that the ketogenic diet does, right? Yeah. It's oh, sort yeah. of if if high glucose is a symptom of the way you eat, it reduces that symptom and yes, it does reduce your blood sugar and all that is good, but your insulin may still be high if you're not eating uh, a ketogenic diet. How does eating keto help diabetics keep glucose stable? Yeah, it's actually interesting that the the common problem for all diabetics is we're not able to clear glucose out of our blood. Right. And our body doesn't want high glucose because it, there are a lot of uh, flow-on effects. So so our body is working very hard to keep glucose from going too high. Um, there's a kidney threshold. Once your glucose goes 
too high for too long, your kidneys start filtering it out and spilling it via urine. And in fact, that was the, the way the ancient Greeks first discovered that there was sugar that was involved with this diabetes disease. They drank their pee? Some idiot what? drank their pee. I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, and that's, that's What's how wrong they with fil- those people? I know. It's crazy. So, <laughs> so, so that's how some, some idiot worked out that, uh, that it was sugar was involved, that pee was sweet. Oh, some sweet. idiot. Yeah. We, could thank, we could thank perversion. Yeah. For uh, discovering this scientific fact. <laughs> Ancient Greeks. <laughs> All right. So we can't, if we're di- type 2 diabetics, we can't clear glucose efficiently. The bottom line for all diabetics is we can't, we can't clear glucose. We can't get it out of the blood. We can't yep. use it. Generally, how you get rid of uh, glucose is you increase insulin and that pushes it into your cells. Any that gets pushed into the liver gets turned into fat. Yep. And our body has all of these wonderful mechanisms for getting glucose down to that safe range that it wants it in. Enough for the brain, right. but not too much so that all of these problems happen. Diabetics have this problem that we can't clear the dietary glucose. We, we you know, we, we eat carbohydrates and our glucose goes up and our insulin is just not effective and we can't get it down. So the thing about the keto diet is bec- the keto diet removes all of the carbohydrates or as really you're only down to incidental carbohydrates in your right. diet. And the only glucose that's in your blood at that point is the glucose that your liver makes. And your liver is able to demand supply that glucose. So it's like an alternate method of glucose control. So right. with normal people, they can produce either more or less insulin to decide how much glucose they're going to have. People on the keto basically produce more or less glucose from the liver. So they're, they're modifying it from the supply end of things rather than the, from the clearing end of things. I love your bathtub analogy. Can you tell us that? Yeah, I, I likened it to a bathtub where, where, uh, there's something blocking the drain. So normally you've got the bathtub and you've got, you've got the faucet on and you're running water into the bathtub and you've got the, the let's say the plugs out of the bathtub and the bathtub doesn't overflow because there's enough water's coming out of the plug. But let's say there's something blocking the drain. Maybe you've got a, a, a hand washer down there that's blocking the drain. All of a sudden, the bathtub starts overflowing and sloshing around everywhere. And that's the analogy. Excess glucose in you in your blood going rampant and, and causing lots of flow and problems. So the obvious thing, obviously, is just to turn, turn down the faucet to just the amount that you need. Right. And watch when, you know, when the bathtub starts to get close to the top turn down the faucet when the bathtub sort of gets a little bit too low, turn it up again and just, and that's, so that's really the, the bathtub analogy of, of, of glucose status. So uh, my takeaway this week is uh, even though I've hit a plateau weight wise, the, that's not the reason that I went on this diet. The reason I went on this diet was to control type two diabetes. In fact, I plan on reversing it much like you have. Yeah. And you know, the typical problem with, uh, with dieting and when I'm not in ketosis is you get frustrated at the number. I would get frustrated at a plateau and say, ah, it doesn't matter anyway. I'm just going to go eat what I want to eat. And this time I just don't want to do that. Like I'm, I'm not having the carb cravings. So the diet is working for me. Like I I haven't taken any vitals yet, but I'm sure my insulin is down. I'm sure my blood pressure is down. My triglycerides is down. And I'm sure my uh, LDL HDL ratio is getting better. I mean, this has happened to me before, so I'm not worried about it. Uh, and, And I think this is the takeaway for everybody else who's doing this and hitting a plateau. Don't, Stop. Keep calm and keto on. Yeah, keep calm and keto on. Push through it. Yeah. I think the the ways that people think they're getting over, and this is just my 
conjecture. I think the way that people think they get over a, a plateau because they do certain things, we don't really know if those things have any effect or not. It could just be a natural byproduct. And, and I think it is just a natural byproduct of doing the keto diet. You're going to plateau for a while. Yeah. So yeah, that's absolutely. It. So uh, no, that, that, that's it. Keep calm and keto on is my, my attitude for this kind of thing. So recipe time. Heard you say you're due for a little. Okay. What have you got, Carl? Me first. Yeah. All why right. not? So I love Asian food. I'm mm. not going to lie. I love Thai uh, food. Too. I love hot food. I love Indian food. Dim uh, sum. Even, mm. I love dim sum, Chinese, uh, even authentic Chinese, although I draw the line at cats and dogs. Uh, yep. I don't even like them as pets, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm a dog. I'm a dog person. So you're a dog that's, lover. That's fine. Yes. With the right sauce. <laughs> so, um, and, and of course, sushi and Japanese food is wonderful. The Japanese have revolutionized food. Uh, I, I think they're wonderful. Anyway, I have a pad thai recipe. Oh, I love pad thai. It's one of my favorite meals. Pad thai, noodles. Carl, you're crazy. <laughs> However. How do you do rice noodles on a keto diet? You don't. Ah. You use this stuff called shirataki. Shirataki noodles. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. You can get these at any grocery store. 100% low carb. I believe they're made from a vegetable. Yeah. It's a some kind of gourd, I think. So they're very resilient. You know, you can stretch them and stuff and they're very stretchy and a little bit slimy. So here's So that's a good texture for pad thai, isn't it? Cuz pad thai is that it's not like a an Italian noodle where it's dry. Yeah. It's, it's it's like a slimy texture the pad thai noodle. But shirataki noodles right out of the bag kind of smell bad. Ooh. They have this sort of Play-Doh smell to them. Ooh, and nasty. it's really just because of the, yeah, it's really because of the stuff they're packed in, but you can totally get rid of it. And here's how you do it. First thing you do is rinse them in hot water. Rinse, 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 and then put them in a bowl and microwave them for a minute, just a minute and take them out, rinse them again, microwave them again, rinse them again, microwave them again, just do it three times. And then you need to put these noodles on a paper towel or a kitchen towel and wrap them up in a kitchen towel or two towels and just wring them out, like get all the moisture out of them. And the, and then they have absolutely no flavor. Wow. So here's the sauce, the juice of half a lime, the juice of a third of a lemon, one and a half uh, tablespoons of reduced sugar ketchup. And I'll post a link to the one that I use. Half a teaspoon of Worcestershire sauce. And here's the magic bullet, three tablespoons of red boat fish sauce. Oh, yeah. This stuff is so good. Mm. All right. One and a half tablespoons of sambal olek. That's a mm -hmm. chili paste. One and a half teaspoons of minced garlic. A tablespoon of natural peanut butter, which you can also get anywhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't don't use Skippy. You can make it yourself, too. You just get you peanuts. You can make it yourself. It's just peanuts, right. A teaspoon of rice wine vinegar and seven drops of liquid stevia. You can get all this stuff. And let me tell you something. It's just as good as any pad thai I've ever had. So the noodles and the toppings, of course, you get two packets of shirataki noodles. I like to use the fettuccine style or linguine style, like the flatter noodles, because they also come in angel hair, which is too too thin for me. Uh, a quarter cup of cilantro chopped, three medium green onions chopped, two large eggs, uh, three medium chicken thighs. 
Now, these have to be no skin, no bones. So get them with the skin and bones on. Take the skin and bones out. Four tablespoons of coconut oil. That's what you fry the whole thing in. Four ounces of mung bean sprouts and two tablespoons of peanuts chopped up. Mm. I use dry roasted peanuts. It's so good. You mix together all the ingredients for the sauce and set aside. Uh, and then debone and deskin the chicken thighs and cube them. Cut them into cubes. You heat two tablespoons of coconut oil in the pan over medium heat. Just thinking about this makes me hungry. Yeah, I'm hungry now too. Hey, I've not, I've not eaten for 56 hours, so I'm... <laughs> because it's that combination of coconut and heat and fish sauce. Yeah. Like that, and, and peanuts, and that's what gives you the... All right, so you add the chicken, fry those all up, get them nice and, and uh, cooked up, and then add the shirataki noodles, and five to eight minutes in the in the oil. And then you reduce the heat and you scramble two eggs in the noodles. And that, then you add the sauce and let it cook down for about five to ten minutes. And, man, sprinkle that with peanuts and mung bean sprouts. And that's some goodness right there. That sounds great. The only thing I would change there is I'd remove the cilantro because I've got that weird genetic uh, variant where any amount of cilantro in a meal makes the entire meal taste soapy. Oh, it's not interesting. It's a genetic thing. It is. So, um, but I love the seed and the root from the same plant. Yeah. So coriander seed works great for me. So, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Well, that's what I got and we'll put, we'll post a link to it. All right, Richard, what's mm, yours? Lovely. Well, so I'm going to do, I'm going to do one. I, I promised last week I said we'd do, uh, do some ice cream because, uh, last week you might remember I did the om nom omelets and we had, uh, we had an egg yolk left over. And, I, you know, I have, I was having these om nom omelets every day. And so by the end of the week, I'd have, uh, I'd have six or seven egg yolks left over. Yeah. So I developed this recipe for making, uh, making ice cream. And, uh, it's, it's a basic recipe that you can add. You can make any kind of ice cream, but I'm going to tell you one right now, which is a low carb maple bacon ice cream. All right. And so the, the ingredients for this is we're making a basic anglaise sauce. Uh, so we're going to basically use yolks and cream and a little bit of a sweetener. Um, and I use, uh, for six egg yolks, I'd use about 600 mils of pure cream and half a cup of sugar equivalent sweetener. And I, I use Splenda. Um, and there's the, it has some carbs and we're going to have a show at one point where we're going to talk about artificial sweeteners and, uh, we can talk about those carbs in that. But okay. we're basically making a custard. It's, on, it's called an anglaise sauce, but, and then you use an ice cream maker, obviously, to, to, uh, freeze that up. But the actual flavoring, we're going to use about 300 grams of bacon and we're going to use a little bit of hickory smoke flavor. And this is, uh, it's, this is actually, uh, you can buy it in, a, in an ingredient store. Liquid smoke is what we call it here. Yeah. I use a powdered one, which has got also got a little bit of carbs because it's made with rice starch, but so it's a very small amount, but it's, it's trying to amp up the smoky flavors of the bacon. Nice. Uh, if you can actually get uh, maple bacon, then uh, we don't get it so much here in Australia, so we have to make our own. So I, mm. I use some uh, five drops of concentrated maple essence, which is also mm. another a little uh, chemical trick you can get from a, an ingredient store. But mm-hmm. um, I cover the bacon with uh, a sugar-free sweetener. I use an erythritol stevia blend, which is uh, – you can buy it, it. It's called – in America, it's called Truvia, and in Australia, it's just called erythritol stevia. 
um, crystals. And so basically what I do is I sprinkle two tablespoons of the sweetener over the bacon and I bake it at 200 Celsius for about 20 minutes or until crispy. And 200 degrees Celsius is 392 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, thanks, Carl. Yeah. And I turn it every now and then so that basically what I'm making is like a candied bacon. Nice. Um, and then I chop that up nicely and I then put that into the cream and put that into a saucepan and I warm up the cream and I add to the cream, I add, I add the sweetener, a half a cup of sweetener and I add all of the flavorings, the maple essence and the smoky flavor that I'm adding. So, uh, so I've got this, uh, I've got this bacony sweetened cream in a saucepan and I get it to a slow simmer. So I'm getting it warm and then I put it aside and I put a second pot on the stove with just some water in it. I'm making a double boiler. So basically I, I boil up that water. I get the water going to a boil and I put a bowl on top of that, put my egg yolks in it. I whisk those egg yolks until, until they go white. Yeah. We're slowly cooking the egg yolks. Traditionally, what you do is you do it with sugar. You'd use egg, eggs, eggs and sugar, and then you'd add the warm cream to that one ladle at a time. Yeah. But I, I like to get the flavor working right. So, yeah, so I yeah. add everything to the cream so that I can then taste it and make sure that I've got that bacony flavor happening. And it's really, so what you're doing is you're cooking the eggs, but to the point where you kill the bacteria, which is about 170 to 175 degrees Fahrenheit or 76 degrees, 77, 78 degrees Celsius. And that kills the bacteria, but it's not hot enough to make scrambled eggs. Yeah, that's right. So there's about a 10 or, or 15 degree window there that you want to keep it in. So so I'll have it on and off the pot to, to get it to the right temperature. Yeah. Then I add in a spoonful at a, at a time of the cream, of the flavored cream mixture. Ah. And so once I've got about half of the cream mixture added in spoonful at a time and I'm whisking the whole time, then I can add all of the, the remaining cream mixture in. And, and you do that because if if you put in hot stuff too much, the eggs will cook more. So That's you're right. tempering it. You're tempering yeah, it. It's exactly right. And you know it's ready if, if it coats the back of a spoon. And I'll put a link to a blog that I've got about uh, about this recipe, and you'll see pictures about how to do that there. And by the way, you have a lot of recipes on your blog. Do I? And I want to <laughs> mention that, that I know we share two recipes uh, every show, but Richard's got a huge cache of recipes I've got on his few, blog, yeah. easylowcarb.com. So we'll link to that as well. I need to add some more because there's some uh, recipes that I've been eating a lot lately that are a lot of fun. And I, I, th I think I'd like to share some of those. So. so now Alton Brown says, once you have this mixture done and let's say it's coated the back of a spoon, then you refrigerate it like overnight. I don't do that. You don't do that? You go right into the ice cream maker? Yeah. I used to do that. And in fact, I originally adapted this from an Alton Brown uh, recipe. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's the, the, the man's a genius when it comes to, to to explaining how food works. Did I mention we're foodies, ladies and gentlemen? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I've got, uh, I've basically got a creme anglaise yeah. that is bacon flavored. Now it's got all these bits of bacon in it. So I need to strain those out. Why? Why would you do that? Yeah. Well, because because all that's left is the fiber of them. And so it's actually oh, okay. I, I I did actually make a couple of ice creams with the bacon in there. Uh, and it was a bit it was a bit funky uh, okay. funky texture. So you want the flavor it, without the the fiber. Without Got the it. fiber, yeah. Without the texture of the the of the of the bacon. So Okay. 
the, the good thing about this particular ice cream recipe is if you take the eggs a little bit too far and they just go a little bit scrambled, what ends up happening is you get a more eggy flavour and egg and bacon is an awesome flavour. So if you get uh, yeah. this, this particular <laughs> ice cream, if you do take the eggs too far, it's actually also a good thing. It's also a good thing. Yeah, it is. So then I just chuck it in an ice cream maker and, and in sometimes the strained out bacon bits I might add as a, as a sprinkle on the ice cream. But, nice. Uh, yeah. So do you find that when you eat ice cream or, or dairy that you have an insulin response no matter what, or even artificial sweeteners, do you find, can you eat ice cream for a meal and still lose weight or, you know, not gain? Yeah, I eat ice cream every day. I'm one of these lucky people that doesn't really get a high glucose response from a lot of the artificial sweeteners. Mm. Maltitol does affect me, right? but uh, all of the other sugar alcohols like erythritol, sorbitol, glycol. Um, but, and and that's good to point out that sucralose, which is another one that you use, hmm, which yeah. is the basis of Splenda, that, that is not a sugar alcohol either. No, it's a right. modified... It's a modified carbon atom, isn't it? Yeah, it's modified glucose. It's it's basically glucose. chlorinated glucose. So, uh, so one of the tricks that I found with ice cream is most ice creams normally have milk in them, and the, the cream fats are spread out a bit. But this is just this is concentrated a fatty, fatty ice cream. Yeah. So, and the problem there is that it becomes very rich. Right. I found that one trick for portion management is to use a silicone ice block tray. Oh, yeah. And so I have an ice block tray that, that has 24 ice blocks. It's a silicon tray, and I just uh, pour the ice cream into that. So you have one of those. I get one of those. I have a little puck, and, and I have that with a couple of berries, and that, that will be my, my dessert for, for the day. And I've, I've had that pretty much every day for two years. So, wow. Um, yeah. It's, ama- it's amazing how good you can eat on this diet. All right. So next time we're going to talk about insulin, right? Yes. Next time, th- this is the, uh, the the flip side of the sugar coin is insulin, and uh, that's going to be a very interesting discussion. Absolutely. Richard, it's been great talking to you as always. Thank you very much, Carl. I shall see you next week, and I'll hopefully see the listeners as well. Yeah. We'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. Two Keto Dudes.